So Acts 24, if you'll find your place. Acts 24. Starting in verse number 10, follow along as I read just a few verses here. And we'll look back at a couple other places just to set the scene. Most of you know what's going on as Paul is about to, uh, he's about to preach the word here. So starting in verse number 10, it says, Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, Governor didn't know what he was getting into, did he? He wouldn't have done that. <laughs> For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing, disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. That was actually verse number uh, 12 is, was the charge given against Paul. He says, they can't prove this. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I, the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. I've entitled this, uh, this passage, uh, What is Your Confession? Subtitled, Just the Facts, Ma'am. Sub subtitled, Dum da dum dum. Okay, you get it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your word. Would you bless as we open it? Help us to understand what you have for us. May you speak to all of our hearts. May we respond as you speak to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So obviously years ago, there was a show on television called Dragnet. You remember, you old people remember. I remember watching as a boy, I had no idea what a dragnet was. What is exactly a dragnet, I didn't know. But I remember this, Joe Friday was cool. He was cool. That show began as a radio show in 1949 and was on radio and television until 1970. And you will remember that it always started out like this. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. And of course, Joe Friday, everybody knows his most famous line, 
he said in every show, eventually, here it comes, just the facts, ma'am. And then almost every show ended the same way, like this. The accused person, eventually seeing he was caught, there's, there's no way out. He would finally, he would spill the beans and he would confess. And there was nothing more satisfying, I remember watching, than hearing the criminal break down and in tears and confess that he was guilty. He had done it. And then you heard, dum, the dum, dum. Still remember that. Now, the word confession can also be used in another way other than a person confessing that they're guilty of some crime. Confession has another uh, meaning. Webster put it this way. A formulary in which the articles of faith are comprised. A creed to be assented to or signed. A confession. It's like a mission statement. We have a mission statement here at the church to honor God and help people. That's uh, basically, it's, a, it's our confession. It describes, not necessarily of what we're guilty of doing, like on Dragnet. In this case, we're talking about a confession that talks about what we're guilty of believing. Now, if you were on trial, God forbid... And you were asked to give your confession, your creed, your mission statement about what you believe. Could you do it? What would you say? Could you, without assistance or preparation or notes or anything, could you confess, give your confession uh, about what you believe about God and about your faith? Peter, he encouraged us this way. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, he said. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's what Paul did in these verses. So Paul was arrested in chapter number 21. If you want to look over there real quick, we'll just... Uh, see exactly a little bit about what happened in chapter number 21, uh, verse number 28. Notice what it says, uh, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man, talking about Paul, that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, talking about the temple, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. So that was the accusation given against Paul that he had polluted the temple by bringing in a Greek, which was untrue, wasn't true, but it was made up in order to get Paul. And so there was this mob that occurred and, and Paul was probably going to be torn asunder, but this Roman officer named Lysias rescued him. And so in chapter number 23, he's taken to Caesarea and he's under safekeeping now under Roman guard. So the Jews won't be able to, to uh, kill him or get to him. And so chapter number 24, where we read, 
Chapter number 24 begins with the high priest and this lawyer. Can you imagine if you could hire anyone to say, to give your part, your lawyer, to speak for you? You would hire, I'm talking about the most eloquent you possibly could get. And they certainly did. They hired a lawyer named Tertullus. And in front of the governor, in front of Felix, uh, Tertullus spells out the charges that are against Paul, starting in verse number five. Look what it says there, chapter 24, verse five. For we have found this man, that's Paul, a pestilent fellow. And a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout all the world. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. I love the words he uses. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Who also hath gone about to profane the temple. Whom we took and would have judged according uh, to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us. And with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. He polluted the temple, and we would have taken him by our law. Lysias, he with great violence took him, and that's where we find him. These accusations that were given aren't true. They're just made in an effort to silence Paul's preaching, obviously. Now, in that time frame, the Jews, they had permission by Rome to punish anyone who profaned the temple. So had he genuinely done that, the Jews would have had uh, permission by Rome, by the government, to punish them. But he hadn't done that. He hadn't profaned the temple. He hadn't brought in a Greek. This was all false. Just as they accused Jesus, remember, who did they appeal to? A Roman official. The same way they're doing this now to Paul. Felix, he allows Paul to speak. Can you hear Paul? Paul was bold. Paul was always ready to give his testimony. It never seemed to matter to Paul in whom he stood, if it was in front of a king, if it was in front of religious leaders. He was going to take every opportunity to preach the word. And I can just hear him, Felix, now I'm not guilty of what they're accusing me, but I do got a confession to make. And in those three verses of chapter 24, those three verses, he really sums up what it means to be a believer. He, his confession, put it this way, should be my confession. And it should be your confession. Now before we really look at this confession, I want you to notice an important fact. This world that we live in, even the religious world, the secular world, of course, but even this religious world, it may not appreciate true Christians. In fact, this religious or secular world may consider you a pestilent fellow. I looked up the word pestilent. I wonder, what does that mean? It means they think you're a disease. 
They may think that about you. But Christians who are quiet about their faith, they probably won't have a problem. Christians who fit in well with the culture around them. We were just going through the book of Genesis in our, in our Sunday school classes. Lot is a great example of someone who had no problem fitting in and everything was fine until one day he spoke up and said, don't do wickedly, men. Boy, they turned on him. Christians who are afraid to be what they are will probably have no problem. But believers... Christians like Paul who refuse to be carried along with a godless society and who are not afraid to let their light shine and who love God so much that it shows will probably face the disdain of the world and maybe even the religious world, maybe even within the church. That's Paul. He was a pestilent fellow. But those three things, starting in verse number 14, verse 15 and 16, really these three things about his confession that I think we would say this should be my confession. This should be all believers confession are right in those three verses. In verse number 14, number one, notice this. Paul says, this is my faith. My faith in verse number 14. I confess unto thee that after the way which they call heresy. So worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Paul is saying this. Listen, he's saying this is nothing new. What I'm worshiping now is the God of my fathers. This is the same God, he's saying, who walked with Adam in the garden. That's the God. This is the same God that led Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. That's the same God. The same God that talked with Moses in the burning bush. That's the God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God of the judges and the prophets and the God of Esther and Ruth and Rahab and all those who paved the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's the God that I worship. It's not a new thing. He's telling Felix this, Christianity is not some new thing. In fact, he's saying Christ is a fulfillment of the law. It's who the prophets foretold. Jesus is very God. Amen. Felix, this isn't new. I'm talking about what the law and the prophets have foretold. Jude in the New Testament calls our faith that which was once delivered to the saints something ancient, something old, delivered to the saints. And he says, I want you to contend for that faith. Now think about Paul's faith. It's really hinges on these two important things. First of all, he's saying in verse number 14, the, those things which are written, he's saying this, I, I believe in God's word, the law, the prophets, everything it's in his word, that's what I believe. I believe everything that, God, that the Bible says about Jesus, I believe it. Everything he says we should do or not do, I believe. I believe about, I believe everything in his word. He didn't just invent some, some uh, uh, system of beliefs in his own mind or in his own heart. He stood on God's word. And the same should be true. For every believer in this room, for Southwest Baptist Church as a church, we have, listen, we have no guidebook. 
We have, we have no standard. We have no pope. We have no one outside except we have his word. We don't look to some other book for our statement of faith put together by some man somewhere. We don't read what the latest thing the Pope said or had to say. We don't read the Westminster Confession. Uh, confession. <laughs> we don't read the Book of Mormon. We don't read the Watchtower. We don't even read the Purpose Driven Life. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that. We have his very words. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I have his very words to guide us in all manners of faith and living. I have his words. Hinges on that. And just in case, just to clarify, in case you're wondering, what are you talking about, Brother Ted? I'm talking about that Bible you hold in your hand. In English, the King James Bible, you can rest assured and confident that you hold God's very word in your hands. We don't follow traditions of men, even as good as those men may have been. We don't believe or we don't act because this is what we've always done or this is what those who we follow always did or said we should do. No, we don't have to because we have his word. You don't even have to think of for yourself what you need to believe. Have you ever talked to somebody about church or about the Lord or about their faith and have them come up with something, say something really uh, amazing like this? Well, here's what I think. Well, who cares what you think? Doesn't matter what I think. Doesn't matter what you think, what some smart person thinks, what somebody else thinks that writes a lot of books. It doesn't matter what we think. We have his very words. Paul saying, I believe the law and the prophets. How can a person know God and love God and follow God and believe in God? There's only one way by believing in his word. God has revealed himself through his word. Through the word. No one can know God apart from knowing him through his word. That's why we're careful. We're careful some new doctrine come along. And regardless of how wonderful the preacher may appear. Or eloquent or intelligent or how intelligent and well spoken the writer may be or how big this crowd is or how many followers he or she has on on their Instagram and how important they seem to be. God has given us everything we need in his word. And can I tell you, he hasn't left the door open for any more new revelation. What do you think about this book? What do you think about that book you hold? Someone wrote, the Bible's to be believed implicitly and interpreted literally and obeyed utterly. Do you believe his word implicitly? In other words, that every, every word is breathed by him. And it's a book without error. It's not a book written by men. And you may have a conversation with somebody you know or work with and, and uh, they may attack the Bible by saying it's just a book written by men. You know, they've been saying that for a long, long, long time. 
Just a book written by me. Can I tell you, the Bible says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You can place all your faith and all your hope in its words. You'll never be disappointed. You can believe it. Implicity. Do you believe that the Bible can be interpreted literally? Sometimes that, that distinguishes us from others, doesn't it? Sometimes a literal interpretation of the Bible will distinguish you from others who say that they believe the Bible. Because it's not just nice words and stories, it's truth. For instance, when the Bible says, well, God created the world and everything that we see and know in six days, guess what? Regardless of what all the science books say. Regardless of what all the doctors on television and all those who have all kinds of models and examples and theories for a long time, regardless what all they say, guess what? We'll stick with the Bible. It can be interpreted literally. How about this one? When the Bible says, male and female created he them, <laughs> who would have thought we'd ever have to argue about that? I mean, I'm not that old. Come on. But I figured that out in like, I don't know, ninth grade. I mean, come on, we've known that for a long time. Regardless of what society may say, regardless of what our culture says, regardless of what influencers say, the Bible's clear. It can be believed literally. How about this? When the Bible says Jesus is coming again, Guess what? Regardless of what scoffers say, because they've been scoffing for a long time, let them scoff. Regardless of those who don't believe in the rapture or those who try to explain it away, even some who say they believe in his word, try to explain away the rapture. You can believe it literally. How about this? Do we obey it utterly? God's word wasn't just given for our enjoyment. It was given for an instruction in righteousness. It shows us how to live. It was given to be obeyed. And we don't have the right to just pick and choose parts that we like. It's to be obeyed utterly, fully. Listen to this poem, great poem. I'm sure you've heard it before. Last eve, I paused beside the blacksmith's door. And I heard the anvil ring, the vesper chimes. And then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn out with the beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers? So just one said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. So I thought the anvil of God's word. For ages skeptics' blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammers, they're all gone. His word can be believed and obeyed. Paul, it hinged on that for Paul, the law and the prophets. And Paul based his faith on something else that was very important. And he mentioned it several times. 
Paul had a personal meeting with Jesus Christ. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and you know the story. And after Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was a changed person immediately. Things were not the same for Paul. He went from a person who was literally responsible for the death and imprisonment of those who followed Christ to the greatest preacher of Christ and the gospel the world has ever seen after he met Jesus. Now, what could make such a drastic change in person's life? Well, Paul turned over a new leaf over there on that road, decided he was going to do something different. I don't think so. Well, he made a New Year's resolution. Hey, I've made plenty of those. They last about January 3. Okay. That wasn't it. Well, Paul just had a lot of willpower. Well, maybe, but I don't think that was it. Paul carried around some motivational podcasts. And that helped, well, maybe he got the Christmas spirit. Hey, I get that every December 25th for a day. But that won't change a person for long. The kind of change that Paul experienced in his life was really just due to this one thing. He met Jesus. No one who's ever met Jesus left unchanged. If any man be in Christ... He's a new creature. And just think about the people just literally that he met. He met a blind man and the blind man left with his sight. And he met a leprous man and and the leper went away whole. And he met a demon possessed man and the demon possessed man went away with his his right mind. And he, he even met a dead man. And he went away undead. How do you say that? And you just look for yourself. Those who met Jesus were forever changed. And not just those who had physical, obvious needs that that needed change. There were people that Jesus met that were harlots and thieves and religious, self-sufficient. And they were believed in him and were changed forever. And how is it? I'm not sure. How is it that there are people today who said they've met, they have met Jesus Christ and they know him, they received him, but they're not changed. They met Christ, God's only born son, and went away not changed. I don't even know if that's possible. And it's not my business to say someone's not saved or they've not been born again because they haven't changed, but it is troubling To say, yes, I believe in Jesus and just live any way you want. That's not how Paul lived his life. He believed the word and he met Jesus for himself and his faith hinged on those two things. That was Paul's faith. Look at verse number 15. Here's Paul's hope. And I have hope. I have hope toward God which they themselves allow. In other words, those Jews, they're okay that I hope toward God, he says, that there should be this, the resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. Paul said, I have a belief and my belief is so strong that it leads me to have a hope. 
Now, I don't, <clears throat> here's a good example. For those of you who buy lottery tickets, <laughs> I've never bought one, so I'm just guessing, but I did look it up. The chances of winning one of those big lotteries that every now comes around, you know, it gets like the millions and millions and millions of dollars that almost tempt me to go buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> chances are about 300 million to one. So if I go down and buy, actually buy a lottery ticket and I say, I hold my ticket up and I say, oh boy, I hope I win. That's not the kind of hope that he's talking right. about. Amen. This hope means this, expectation or confidence. Paul said, my faith is in God and it's based on his word. And because of that, it leads me to have a hope. It leads me to have a confident expectation. And in this verse, verse 15 in particular, his hope was in this. There is going to be a resurrection. My hope is not in this life, he's saying. My hope's not here. My hope is in there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be another life. When you think about it, what good is it to have a faith that doesn't lead to hope? Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So what was it that kept Paul? What was it that kept him going through all the trial after trial that we read about in the book of Acts? Well, he had faith that brought hope. And I'm afraid many believers today are living a life of faith that promises hope, but the hope that they're looking for is in this life. If you believe this, sometimes we hear. If you speak this, sometimes we hear. If you follow this, sometimes we hear in Christianity, then you will get this. Inevitably, that means stuff. Believe this, follow this, speak this, do this, and you'll have this. And then when God doesn't come through, when they don't get it, when the stuff that was promised doesn't come through and then when their trials come and they lose their hope because they were looking all the while in the wrong direction. Our hope isn't here. Our hope isn't in this life or what stuff we may have or what stuff God may give us. Our hope is in the next life. And God in his word promises, he'll wipe away all tears. That gives us a reason to hope. It lets us know that there is a reason for tears and there's a reason for pain and there's a reason for heartbreak, but there's hope. We're going to see those who've gone on before us. That gives us hope. There's going to be a resurrection. We'll see our loved ones who've died in Christ. It isn't over when we say goodbye to them here. That gives us hope. There is hope. We're going to have rewards in heaven. It gives us hope. The work that we do on earth, the service that we do for him, it doesn't go unnoticed. In Hebrews, Paul put it this way, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work 
your labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, we're going to be rewarded. One day, listen, we're going to see our Savior face to face. That's hope. Someone once said this, we can live for 40 days without food, eight days without water, four minutes without air, but only a few seconds without hope. Aren't you glad you have a hope? It's not a hope based on promises of men. It's not a hope based on even what this earth has to offer, or this world has to offer. It's a hope based in our faith in him. And it's spelled out in his word that the things will, that the way they are now, there will not always be that way. We have hope. The psalm, the songwriter put it this way, his oath, his covenant, his blood Support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. Paul had a faith. He had a hope. And look in verse number 16. He didn't just stop there. He really got down to where we live because he put it this way. Herein do I exercise myself. To have always a conscience void of offense toward God. And toward men. So this is, this is it. I have a faith. And I have a hope. But I also have this. I have good conduct. When I was growing up in school. We had grades like normal stuff. <clears throat> I don't know. They still have math and all that. Just normal stuff. Report card was actually on a card that you took home and your mom signed it or you tried to sign it and make it look like your mother and then you brought it back. Well, when I was in school, they had a, a category called conduct and you were graded from A through F in conduct. Now, I'm not going to tell on myself much, but this... I dreaded every sixth Wednesday because that's when I got my report card. And it didn't matter if every other grade in there was good, which was doubtful. My dad went straight for the conduct grade. What did you act like when I wasn't around? And I have some of them at home somewhere. I was going to bring one, but it's too painful. <laughs> Inevitably, written in red is this phrase from all my teachers, talks too much. How can that be a bad thing, that you, a person would talk? I mean, we learn to talk, but in school, can't talk. So I would get C's or D's. What is good, what, what faith, what does it mean if it doesn't lead to a change in conduct. A faith that doesn't, as James put it, uh, for the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And in this verse, aren't we clued into what Paul is saying? I want to live my life. This faith and hope that I have, I want to live in such a way that my conduct does not offend God or others. That's how he puts it, toward God or toward men. I don't want to ever 
have conduct that's offensive to God or others. Now, the word he uses in verse number 16 is exercise. I exercise myself. Now, that word stands out because exercise means what you think it does. Now, I looked it up. It means this, to take pains, endeavor, exercise by training or discipline. Who doesn't hate the sound of just that word, exercise? Some people love to exercise. For some strange people, maybe in this room, they just get a thrill out of it. What are you doing tomorrow? Oh, I'm exercising. It's going to be great. I love it. You're sick. You need help. What do you mean? You love it. I'm not one of those. I don't enjoy it. No, I don't love it. But listen to these three aspects of exercise, and this makes sense, and this may be why some love it and some don't. Number one, it takes commitment, doesn't it? To be serious about exercise, you have to make a commitment. You have to decide that this is what you're going to do, and you're not going to let anything come or distract you between the decision you've made to exercise. And and most of us, you've tried to exercise like I have. You've been there. You've made a commitment. I'm going to exercise. And you buy something immediately, right? You buy a bike or an exercise bike, you buy a weight set, you buy a treadmill, you buy a Bowflex, you buy a gym membership, and, and you're, I'm serious. I'm making a commitment, I'm gonna get in shape. And now, the sight of that exercise equipment that you have in your bedroom Makes you feel so guilty, you cover it with dirty laundry. You know you do. Commitment. It also takes this, and we've all learned this at some point. Consistency. Exercise is only helpful if it's done consistently. Now, Brother Gaddis, he runs consistently so he can get out and he can run for several miles and he'll be fine the next day. If I ever said to him, I'd like to join you on your run tomorrow... I can run five miles, sure. The next day, I would be hospitalized. (laughs) You can't just do it like that every now and then. You got to be consistent. If you make a commitment to the gym and you only do it, well, every every other week or every other month, that that doesn't help. That's no improvement. That only hurts. You, You grow frustrated. You have to have consistency. And then there has to be concerted effort. And that's the problem, isn't it? Exercise is work. There's pain. There's sweat. Doesn't happen without work on our part. Paul said, I'm exercising. I'm working at not offending God and not offending man with my conduct. I'm committed to it. I'm consistent. and I'm working hard at it. I don't want to be offensive. If I were to write your confession, could we say this under conduct? Hasn't been offensive to God or man. A plus. Or would it be D minus? Because we're living in a society, even a Christian one, now that Now that we can speak online, 
without having to look each other in the face. We're living in a society, even as believers, where our conduct sometimes slips. And I'm afraid we're even purposefully being offensive. And you might be thinking this, because I was. Well, Paul was offensive. <laughs> he was always in trouble with somebody. He finally had his head removed from his body. And all that's true. People were offended by Paul's words. But wasn't the manner which he spoke that brought offense. He wasn't purposefully coarse or harsh. He didn't use certain words just to elicit a response. His behavior wasn't offensive. He wouldn't do things just to simply antagonize those who would be looking at him and looking for a reason to be offended. His uh, offense because of his message. He was offensive because of his message and his godly living. And his first priority was always to obey God first. And his message came from God. It's our duty as believers to live and speak in such a way that we could always say, I have good conscience, as he put it. I have good conscience about my conduct, and I haven't purposefully offended anyone, including God. And the truth is, as illustrated in this passage, the message we carry will offend. Many believed Paul's message and became believers, and just as many others were offended, even to the point of violence. And you might expect the same. You might try to be a witness and find that there will be some who are openly antagonistic. They're offended, not necessarily by you, but by your message. In fact, you could even just mind your business. You could just mind your business and just live as best as possible for Jesus. And somebody will be upset about that. They're offended at the silent message because that convicts their heart. And you may, you may be like Paul, accused of things you haven't done. You may have family members say, yeah, he's too good. He's too good to come around us. Someone at work might say you're too holy. They may impugn your motives. They may not understand. And you might even be hated. Jesus put it this way, if the world hate you, Ye know, it hated me before it hated you. Well, so what should we do? How about this? Keep exercising. Keep standing for what is right on the job, even when your co-workers may sneer and not understand. And keep doing right at school, even when your peers may laugh. And keep living right in front of your family, even when it's tough. And always work at getting an A in conduct. Because that's pleasing to God. Paul's confession was more, obviously, than these words he spoke to Felix. They were the confession of his life, weren't they? This is what he believed and lived. Those three verses. This was his life. And he was guilty. He was guilty of believing and living in accordance with his confession. That confession that we just read. Is that your confession? Do you have a firm belief in God's word? 
Every bit of it. Do you have this hope that ties your heart not to this world, but to the next world? Is your conduct always pleasing both to God and to man? If you don't know Jesus, let me ask you a question. Where does your faith lie? Well, I'm just, Brother Ted, believing that God will let me into heaven. I'm just believing that God is going to do this. I just believe and I, I know I believe God. So I, I, I go to church or I try to be a good person. And my faith's lying in something like that. And something, some word someone said over me or somebody baptized me when I was a baby. I have, that's where my faith is. Can I tell you if your faith is not in Jesus, it's not the kind of faith that will carry you to heaven. Where do you have your hope? It's a shame that believers tie so much hope to this world. Boy, I hope I have this. I hope God will give me this. I hope this and it all seems to be focused on right now. Is that where our hope is? If our hope is in this world, Paul says we're, we're miserable people. Our hope is in the next. Your conduct doesn't point others to him. As he said, he's working at it. He's exercising that his conscience would always be clear. He's not been offensive to God or man. That's just the facts. That's dumb to dum dum. That was Paul's confession. I hope that's yours. I hope you know Jesus. I hope you have a hope that's far beyond this world. And I hope you have conduct that shows where your faith lies. If you don't know Jesus this morning, and you may be a guest, maybe you've just come and someone's invited you, or maybe somebody left a track on your door, and you're here, maybe just kind of by accident, you think, it's not an accident. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you can place your faith in him today and have a home in heaven. And your hope won't be here anymore, it'll be there. And he will even help you with your conduct. You've got to exercise. He'll help you to live a life of, uh, that doesn't have offense toward God or man. That's Paul's confession. I hope it's yours. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to have a word of prayer here in just a second. We're going to ask God to speak to hearts as, we, as we've already asked. <clears throat> Could be God spoken to yours. In some way, in a way that has something to do with this message or nothing to do with this message. But first, let me ask this question. Who would say, Brother Ted, would you pray for, uh, would you, with my uplifted hand, I want to give testimony to the fact that I know Jesus as my Savior. I know that I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. That's where my faith is. It's in Christ. My hope is not in this world. Yes, all over. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you received Jesus some, one day? Someone pointed you to Christ. What a great testimony. Is there one who would say, Brother Ted, I'm not sure about that. Maybe this is the first time you heard about it. Maybe the first time you've ever, someone's ever said that you can have eternal life. You can have your sins forgiven. Maybe you didn't know that. Or maybe you're not sure about that. Maybe you've been religious or tried to be good. But none of those things will regain you the forgiveness of sins. Maybe you're concerned about that this morning. You've been thinking about that. Maybe God's speaking to your heart even right now.
If you'll raise your hand, I'll pray for you. Just, I just want to know who to pray for. Yes, I see your hand. Any others? Yes, ma'am, I see your hand. I'm going to pray for you here in just a minute, like I promised. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your word. It speaks to us. All of us in this room need to have that same confession that Paul had. A faith in Christ based on your word. Hope that's in heaven and the resurrection of the dead. And a conduct that's non-offensive to both God and man. I'm thankful for how your word speaks to us. There were some that didn't raise their hand about when I asked about if they were sure they were saved. So I'm praying for them like I promised I would. I'm thankful that they raised their hand. And Lord, I pray that they would have the courage to come forward here in just a minute. Let us take a Bible and show them how to be saved. They can leave this room today knowing for sure that heaven is their home and their sins are forgiven. Would you have your way done in this time of invitation? In Jesus' name.